verses tonight. One Old Testament, Joshua. Joshua, I think we're going to make it official to go to Joshua tonight. And uh, uh, chapter 5, then we're going to go to, hopefully, Romans. Romans, the epistle. We'll start with 10.20 just to round some things up. And we'll go into 11 tonight. And then 1 Timothy. Very helpful for interpretation are the pastoral epistles. 1, 2 Timothy and Titus, extremely important for the interpretation of Paul's epistles. So, you get there? Let's take a couple of moments of... Not that you already haven't, it's already seven after seven, thanks to Dave Bradshaw, who needed to be counseled, so I think I straightened him out, I'm not sure, just just has to learn to stick with one helping, that's all, it'll be okay. All right, let's take a couple of moments, he knows what I'm talking about. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in the name of our Savior, our great God and Savior, who has come and reconciled us, and who will come and redeem all of creation and liberate all creation. We thank you that we have that in common. We groan in anticipation with all of creation and with the Holy Spirit in us for the liberation from Slavery to corruption. It's inevitable. It's imminent. And we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of that universal rectification by faith. This is part of it as we meet tonight for your word. May you make it clear. May you make it a manifestation of your Son through the Holy Spirit. To your glory, Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We're just about ready to leave for the time being. Incidentally, tomorrow night there will be church here starting at 7. The power gospel will be right right here. I texted Phil to see if he's on target, and he said he's ready to rock, but he meant the rock is Christ. So he had to clarify that, as if he had to clarify that for me, because I don't know too much about the Bible, you know. (laughs) I really don't, but I'm learning with all of you. I want to just mention, first of all, though, that as Paul rounded off Romans chapter 10, he spoke of the word of the gospel, the good news going into all of creation, that all of creation has, in fact, heard the gospel, according to Paul, Romans 10.18. And I just want to mention that that gels with a passage in Colossians 1.23, I don't want to leave that alone until we hit this just briefly. The gospel of which Paul was made a minister, he says, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So that agrees with Paul's assessment of the universal scope of all of creation, the redemptive scope of the universal impact of the cross of Christ. So this statement from Colossians 1.23b chimes well with Romans 10.18, which is in turn rooted in Psalm 19.4. And so it's in agreement with Paul's emphatic declaration that all of creation has in effect heard and having heard in effect believed. So all of the creation under heaven sums up the scope of the salvific effect of the cross, whereby the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven, that will being the rectification of all things, the setting right of all that's wrong, and that's accomplished in Christ. In the last part of Colossians 1.22, a misunderstood passage, and the first part of Colossians 1.23, Paul exhorts the saints in Colossae, To continue in the faith, continue in a participation of the Messiah's fidelity, not move from the hope, which is to not be moved from Christ himself, who is the hope of glory, 
having been grounded and established in the gospel. And he says so, not so that they will be saved or justified by continuing. He already declares them to have been reconciled in the body of Jesus' death, or the body of Jesus' flesh through death. He urges them to continue steadfast and unmoved in the faith. I decided to do this little excursus to begin tonight because this applies to our assembly. We are, in fact, a phalanx of believers, shield-wielding believers, wielding the shield of faith. And it forms a main line of resistance against false gospels, against the power of darkness, and it does so not only for ourselves and our families, but for, in fact, our nation, our generation, and generations to come. That's how important it is that we stay in rank, that we continue to hear, that we continue to intake the gospel of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God. And so Paul is speaking here as a commanding officer, as a general, inspecting the ranks in Colossae from afar, and he rejoices, he says, in their stereoma, a word in Colossians 2.5, which means their solid front, their solid front of resistance. And he urges their continuity in this faith and this immovability from the hope of the gospel so they will be presented before God as if the inspector is the commander-in-chief of all the armies, which is Christ. We're going to speak about that in a moment. The captain of the Lord's armies, the captain of Yahweh's hosts. And Paul has the idea in mind that he wants to present that congregation as irreproachable, without reprimand, or without blame in any way. That's why he says to continue in the faith, not so that they'll be saved or justified, but so that they he can present them as irreproachable without reprimand before God. It's also important that we understand that Paul is speaking as a general to the saints collectively as a community. But it to be accurate, that community is rather a phalanx of shield-wielding soldiers. Some of the saints in Galatia, we're going to learn when we get to Galatians, were in, in fact in need of reprimand because they had, in fact, been removed from him who had called them into the grace of Christ, a military term for desertion, breaking ranks, forsaking the assembly, or whatever you want to call it, they forsook it. They were moved. So Paul could not present them to God as a pure sacrifice, as he wants to do in Romans fifteen sixteen, because of their defection, their desertion from the army of Yahweh. The commander of that army happens to be our Lord Jesus Christ. To Timothy, Paul said, endure hardness like a good soldier. Be inured with difficulty like a good soldier of Christ. And he said, you have been recruited by him into a militant grace. I just wanted to make that connection then surrounding Colossians 1.23, which is in agreement with Romans 10.18. Now Romans 10.20, just to round it off, remember Paul says, but Isaiah comes out boldly and speaking for Yahweh says... I was found by those who were not seeking me. He refers there to the Gentiles. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. What's Paul doing here? What's he up to? Paul ended Romans 10 on a note that acknowledged the historical disobedience and defiance of Israel. He doesn't sugarcoat the fact that they have ins they're insubordinate to the judgment or to the righteousness of God, as Romans 10, 3, and 4 says. He does not sugarcoat their not 
knockback, we could call it, of God's outstretched hands. They knocked them back. And that it's apparent in the current trend of the time in which this epistle was written. Israel's historical or historic or during the course of history, defiance and disobedience. Now, we're doing what I like to call, starting right now, exegetical archery here. I like to fire an arrow forward from this place. They are a disobedient people. This means to some of the Gentile Christians in Rome, this seems to encourage them in their bias against the Jewish Christians there and in their assumption that God has forsaken Israel, his people, after the flesh, his elected people. So Paul does something to remedy that situation. They are a disobedient people. But if you fire an arrow up into Romans 11:32 you find that God's plan is to lock up put in lock up all of humanity Jew and Gentile in a maximum security prison called disobedience so that he could have mercy on all Firing the arrow. I'm going to invent that. It's, an, it's a method of exegesis. I'm going to call it exegetical archery. Firing arrows ahead. So that we know what Paul is up to before he gets there. One can almost feel the cringing inside of the Jewish Christians in Rome. The ones at least who had a bias against the Gentile Christians there, and that was a very severe problem. You can almost feel the cringe of the biased Jewish Christians in Rome on the one hand, and you can also feel the proud jubilation of some of the Gentile Christians there who also hold a bias against Israel or Jewish Christian brethren. As for the doubters in the middle, Paul had to deal with them too. For them, the scales, as they read this epistle, and Paul intended for every one of his epistles that went to churches to be read, exegeted, and studied many, many, many times, not just once. They didn't just read the letter from Paul and then say goodnight. They, that letter was studied sometimes for years, repetitively, exegeted, dealt with like we're dealing with it. That's what Paul intended. But as for the doubters in the middle in Rome, for them the scales may seem to have been tipping toward the bias of the Gentile Christians and against the Jewish Christians by the reasoning that Paul seemed to set forth in Romans 9 and 10. But all through Romans, Paul is building a rhetorical argument, a case, as we call it so often. He's building a case which climaxes in the universal mercy of God, which in turn demolishes all of these barriers constructed of bias and actually gives love a free reign and unity finds a place in the church. He's be continuing to build a rhetorical case and he will have made it powerfully. He will have made that case powerfully and very convincingly by the conclusion of chapter 11. My strategy now is on the midweek service, Wednesdays mostly, to build through Romans 11 to its climax in 1132, mercy upon all. The strategy for Sunday mornings will generally be Romans 8, building up to that 832, another climax in which we find that God is for us and that he gave his only begotten son, did not spare him, but freely gave him up for us all. That's how much God is for us. So his great love finds a peak or an apex in Romans 8.32. His universal mercy in 11.32. Then we'll be done with Romans for now. For now. We will have treated Romans in a way 
that reveals God's great love and abundant mercy, both of which are the subject of Ephesians 2.4. That's the strategy now. I finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. In fact, I finally see the end of the tunnel, Romans. But we want to build carefully here in Romans 11. We've already done this. Now, if you want to review some messages, the Better Call Paul series, we dealt quite extensively with Romans 11. And we're going to do it again, though, just to round off the study. Now, Paul comes to a conclusion in chapter 11, not for Christian Jews against Christian Gentiles or for Gentiles against Jews, but he makes a case for the universal mercy of God. The apostle to the nations, as he calls himself in Romans eleven thirteen, begins Romans 11 then by pulling the trigger on a question, which is really the central question here. And the bullet that flies from that gun that he pulls the trigger on hits the bullseye of the contention of some of the Gentile Christians in Rome at the time. Look at it very plainly, Romans 11.1. 1. I ask then, we know who's talking here, don't we, Paul? I ask then, God has not rejected his people, has he? The rhetorical question. And that means... What is demanded when you ask a question like that, God has not rejected his people, has he? Demanded is a negative answer. Paul even gives it. But we almost feel the cringe here in the biased Gentile believers because they're saying you can almost hear their minds going as this epistle is first read to them. I've stretched out my hands all day long, he says about Israel, to a defiant and disobedient people. Yeah, there it is. He's for us here, the Gentile Christians. He's for us. He's on our biased side. And we can see here, however, we can feel the cringe in the biased Gentile believers in their anticipation that they are about to be rebuked and challenged. Preach the word, rebuke, exhort, and reprove with all long-suffering, says Paul to Timothy. That's what he's doing here. The question is put rhetorically in such a way that a negative answer is anticipated and, in fact, required. And, in fact, Paul gives it. The apostle doesn't wait at all here. He answers immediately and emphatically with his characteristic Exclamatory phrase, meganoito, meganoito, absolutely not, that's unthinkable. I can just hear if it is true that Phoebe, the one that he sent this, sent with this epistle is reading it dramatically, I can just hear her tone be rather like Paul's, absolutely not. So we have, I asked then, God has not rejected his people, has he? The Gentiles are going, uh-oh, we're in for it now. Meganoito, of course not. That's unthinkable. But not only that, we can almost feel the wince in people today who make the self-assured declaration, and they're so sure of themselves as they say these things. You can almost hear it. If you reject God, he will reject you. They might even point to 2 Timothy 2.12. If we deny him, he will deny us. And they'll think they have their case. And they have plunged so deeply into the ocean of the scriptures that we'd have to measure it in millimeters. while failing to understand when they quote this verse that what God ultimately denies is our denial of him. 
If we deny him, he denies us the right for that denial to be final. Because what does the next verse say? If we stop believing, if we become faithless, if we are unbelieving, he remains faithful. And the faithfulness there is his faithfulness to a promise. And the promise is what he's made to Abraham, that in him, in your seed, that is Christ, all the nations will be blessed. And the blessing there, as we're going to find in Galatians, is the blessing of the Holy Spirit. He can't deny himself. So let me ask you this. What's your denial up and against his non-denial of himself? Is your denial of him stronger than his refusal to allow you to deny him? He has stretched out his hand to a defiant people. This is a picture of Christ on the cross, really, stretching out his hands to a defiant and a disobedient people. Does that mean he's forsaken them on the logic of what people self-assuredly say today? If you reject him, he rejects you. Of course not. God would have to deny his own great love and abundant mercy to deny his people whom he elected in his love. He won't reject you even if you reject him. He will not reject you even if you reject him. It always reminds me of the preacher that taught about God's unconditional and unrestricted love. And another preacher said to him in an argument, well, what if you turn your back on God who is light? What if you turn your back on God? And the preacher said, then his light will shine on your back. He can wait longer than you can remain stubborn. Most of you are here because he, he outweighed your stubbornness. I am. In fact, Jesus has waited past all our stubbornness already. When? When he was nailed to the cross. The patience of the Lord is salvation. His patience is unlimited, and so is the scope of his salvation. Second Peter 3, 15 and 16, in fact, seems to think that Paul in all of his epistles writes about this, that the patience of the Lord is salvation. And we're going to find that that patience in 1 Timothy is apasan, which means it's all-encompassing and unlimited. So if the patience of the Lord is all-encompassing and unlimited, and if his patience equals salvation, then his salvation is all-encompassing and unlimited. Chapter 11 of Romans, the epistle, is a declaration of the bankruptcy. That's why it's called chapter 11. It's a declaration of the bankruptcy of the biases of both the Jewish Christian bias against the Gentile Christians or for themselves against the Gentile Christians and the Gentile Christian bias for themselves and against the Jews. So one is reminded here and I'll give credit to our friend, Eric Diamond, who was visiting that day. He's in Fuller. He's studying in Fuller Theological Seminary to become a pastor. And he wrote me after his visit, and he said this reasoning reminded him of Joshua chapter 5. And so I turned there. And I'm not going to take it away from him, but I actually thought the same thing. But it was more subtly in my mind for a long time. Consider this in Joshua chapter 5, where both biases are knocked down. 
So you could almost say, is God on my side? Or is God on their side? I hope God's on my side against them. The other guys are saying, I hope God's on our side against those Gentiles. They're not even circumcised. They're not following the law. They're not this and they're not that. And the Gentile Christians are saying these Jews, Jewish Christians are claiming to have attachment to Israel. But Israel is abandoned by God, isn't it? Paul said, ooh. So one is reminded in Joshua chapter 5. My attention was drawn there by Eric Diamond recently. Read it in Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him. The Holman Christian Standard Bible was wise enough to capitalize that word, him. Joshua approached him. This is Yehoshua of the Old Testament approaching the greater Yehoshua, God in the flesh. He says, he asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Verse 14, neither, he replied. God doesn't take sides on a battle between flesh and blood. You can't even say he roots for the Steelers. I'm sorry. Or like they say for Penn State, because, you know, their colors are the same color as the sky, white and blue, so God must be a Penn State fan. Well, the principle is God does not take sides in a battle of flesh and blood, where flesh and blood fights flesh and blood. He replied, neither, he replied, I have come as a commander of the Lord's army. That's Yahweh's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in worship. We know who this is now, don't we? Jesus Christ. Then he says, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? Good question. I guess we should probably say that every time we meet together for the word, shouldn't we? What does my Lord want to say to his servants? So Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua, as he's called in Hebrews 4, says to this lesser Joshua, neither, because God doesn't take sides in a battle of flesh and blood. He's on the side of all of humanity and all of creation because God is all in for his creation. God is all for all of his creation, all ways. That's his promeity, his God for us and God is one person. There is no God but the God who is said to be for us all. He's on the side of all of humanity and all of creation. I'll tell you who he's against or what he's against. He's against the suprahuman powers that stand in the way of humanity's and creation's liberation and freedom. And this, in turn, is illustrated by the divine destruction of the walls around Jericho. The walls around Jericho and the utter defeat of that city. Not because God is against Jericho and for Joshua's group, but because God is against the enslaving powers which Jericho represents. Sin, death, the law, hijacked by sin, principalities and powers under the rulership of the adversary, whom God defeats by transforming them. So, whose side is God on in the battle between Jewish Christians? And there shouldn't be one, but there is. And the Gentile Christians in Rome? Neither. He's against the powers that have pitted themselves against each other. 
pitted these groups against each other. And Paul's epistle is about to tear down those walls that protect those biases and keep resentment and bitterness, envy, anger, provocation, and hatred alive. He destroys the root from beneath and the fruit above. Amos 2.9. He's about to let all the saints in Rome trample under their feet together the serpent whose hissing voice has sown such discord among them. In Romans 16.20. So Paul presses his powerful argument here. By using himself as an example now, he starts to stockpile some armament here that is absolutely magnificent because his whole strategy really boils down to 2 Corinthians 10.4. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly and weak. They're not humanly constructed weapons, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Strongholds built on walls, ramparts, and to destroy and bring down towers of arrogance that vaunt themselves against the knowledge of God. That's his strategy in all of his epistles. So he presses this argument every which way you can imagine. And so he fires a lot. He's got a lot of arrows in his quiver, which is really the quiver of the Holy Spirit who with his power fires these fiery arrows. And if we follow this logic deep into Romans to its peak, we find that all things are from God through him and to him. We see a universal impact of the saving will of God through Christ Jesus. So Paul presses his argument now, Romans 1, 11.1b, 1 by using himself as an example, not an example, the paradigm, the pattern of the impossibility of God forsaking his people, Israel. His people, Israel. So what does he say in 11.1b? For I myself am also an Israelite. And he's not talking here about so-called spiritual Israel because he says, I'm an Israelite of the seed, the physical descendancy from Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. He's talking about Israel that's called Israel Katasarka, Israel after physical descent through Abraham. I'm one of them. And what he's saying to the Romans is, look, it happened to me. You talk about defiant and disobedient and defiant against the outstretched hands of God and the Messiah Jesus Christ. I was trying to kill all his people. I was out to slaughter the whole group of those Jesus people. And God, in his own time, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me, did it. And he saved me. So Paul's saying, I'm not just an example. I'm the prototype of what he's going to do to all of Israel. Fire the arrow to 1126 again. This one doesn't have to go as far. And so all Israel will be saved. Paul was saved. Let's skip everything up to 26. Then all Israel will be saved. And he's actually, he's actually saying that. He said, I'm just a forecast, a harbinger. I'm a prototype, a paradigm, a pattern, whatever you want to call it, of what God's going to do to all of Israel. When he raises them from the dead and apocalypses his son in them, they're going to have the same experience I had on the outskirts of Damascus. All of them, without exception. I myself am in Israel out of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. I myself am an Israelite, illustrating that God will not forsake his people. Here Paul is showing himself, or using himself really, not just as an isolated example of God's radical fidelity, even to his disobedient and defiant people. He's not just an example. 
He is presenting himself rather as the paradigm, the exemplar, the example of what God will do in every case of all Jewish people that were descended from Abraham's seed. Whatever tribe, whether it's Benjamin or whether it is Judah, like Jesus' tribe, or whatever tribe it is, Gad, whatever tribe. So Paul is presenting himself as the paradigm, and it's brought out four different ways in First Timothy. Turn there. We're going to take this carefully. The sense is brought out with more clarity in First Timothy one fifteen to 16. And I've translated this from the Greek today. had a great time doing it because it's such a powerful couple verses here. It's magnificent. And it goes back to Lesson 1, RTE, Reading Romans with the Light on, Lesson 1. The pastoral epistles will be very effective in interpreting what Paul is saying through all of his epistles. And here's one of those examples. Totally reliable, he says in verse 15. Pistos here means totally reliable and completely worthy of acceptance is this assertion, this word. Quote, Christ Jesus came into the world, meaning he came into it from outside it, to save sinners. Now that word sinners is a special word. It's not from hamartia, it's hamartoloi, which means a special kind of transgressor. In Luke 6, 32 to 34, the word hamartolos, which is used here, is used specifically for unbelievers. Christ Jesus came into the world to save unbelievers, <laughs> sinners, of whom I am First and foremost, he uses the word protos. I'm not going to write it up here. This will be in print sometime. There are two new doctrine sheets in print out there now, including last Wednesday's on Romans 10. He uses the word protos here. And I'll just write that word up here because it's the four different ways in these two verses. Paul shows himself as the paradigm of what God will do with all of Israel in all the times it's ever lived through history. It doesn't matter because all flesh all together will see and experience the salvation of God. All Israel is going to be saved within the context of all humanity being saved in the context of all creation being redeemed and liberated. Would you expect anything less from your God? Then who is your God? Protoss. P R Omega O T Omicron O S Protoss. It smacks here of a kind of prototype or paradigm, a prime exemplar of what is to be the case with all others who are Israelites. In fact, Paul makes this explicit and emphatic. In 1 Timothy 1.16, he says, For this very reason that I, the first and worst of all sinners. Paul is very audacious, especially against the Jewish Christian missionaries who want people to be justified by the works of the law because those whom he qualifies to be special transgressors are not those who don't do the law, but those who do do the law and assume that God will justify them by it. Those are the real sinners. So Paul was the worst of them all. Of the law, I was blameless. Zeal for my religion, I was killing people. As far as the rectitude of the law, which is an outer observance of Torah, I was blameless. Squeaky clean. In fact, they used to call Paul squeaky because he had a squeaky voice, they said. No, that's well. But then he said, but as to zeal, in the same breath, as to zeal, persecuting the community of God. So when Jesus introduces himself to him suddenly, just showed up in his life and said, 
Hello, I'm Jesus the Nazarene, the one you're persecuting. And Paul said something like Joshua said when he saw the Lord of the armies. And he said, what do you want me to do, Lord? That's not a conversion. That's a death and a life. A death and a life that happened singularly at one moment in Paul. For this very reason, he says in verse 16, that I, the first and worst of all sinners, that means of all in this case, we're dealing with its conjunction with Romans 11.1. 1. All the sinners who are characterized as keepers of the law who assume that by keeping the law they find righteousness. For this very reason, I, the first and worst of all sinners, was shown what? Mercy. I was shown mercy first and foremost as a paradigm of everybody getting mercy, Romans 11.32, again, that's the climax verse. There's a double climax in Romans, 8.32, where we're aiming in Sunday mornings, 11.32, where we're aiming in Wednesdays to conclude and wrap up the double center of Romans, having begun to attack the center from the left and the right in our strategy. I was shown mercy so that in me first uses the same idea here, the prototype of the mercy of God, which God intends to show to all of Israel as well as to all the Gentile nations. It is for this very reason that I, the first and worst of all sinners, was shown mercy so that in me first... The unlimited patience, and the word here is apasan. There's no even definition for it. It means all, but extra all. All-encompassing and unlimited is what it means. The un, all-encompassing and unlimited patience, makrothumia, patience. The unlimited patience, and again, if... Second Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, Paul in all of his epistles references somehow and in some way that God, the patience of the Lord is salvation. Here he calls that patience unlimited and all-encompassing. So we can interchangeably use salvation for patience. The patience of our Lord the, is salvation. So if the patience is unlimited and all-encompassing, then so is the salvation of our Lord, unlimited and all-encompassing. Paul is an example of it. He didn't walk down an aisle. He didn't sing chestnuts roasting on an open fire, as if that's got anything to do with Christmas. He didn't say, baby, it's cold outside. He didn't sing it. He didn't believe in a fat elf who squiggles down your chimney and leaves presents under the tree to enhance the material lust of your children. He knew that God in the fullness of time sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. And that's not just the Jews, that's all of humanity because they were under the law because the law was hijacked by sin, which had control over all humanity. That's Christmas. So have yourselves a merry little Christmas. Yes, I know, I'm the Grinch. I make the Grinch look like a real sweetheart when it comes to these these days but please don't think I'm disrespecting chestnuts roasting on an open fire I'm not disrespecting it but who has ever done that did you ever have chestnuts roasting on an open fire how many have Dave has okay <laughs> you represent all of us You're, that's good enough for me Dave if you did it we all did so then, we've all had Jack Frost nipping at our nose, so we're, we're good. Okay. Why did I do that? I don't know. But any, in any case, it is for this very reason that I, again, Paul speaking of himself, the first and worst of all sinners are shown mercy so that in me first, 
as a prototype of the mercy God intends to show on all of Israel, the unlimited patience of Christ Jesus as a pattern of those who are about to believe in him unto unto life or unto the life of the coming age. Those who are to believe in him unto the life of the coming age. That doesn't mean that that life comes because you believe. It means that believing you experience the life of the coming age, which he anticipates all Israel doing. So four ways he shows he's the prototype, the first and the foremost. He is the pattern and the paradigm. He says it four different ways. I am first and foremost, 1 Timothy 1.15. I am the first and worst of all sinners, 116. In me first, prototype, 116. As a pattern, 116. Four different ways Paul calls himself not just any old example. But as an Israelite, he is the paradigm of all Israel being saved. So the mercy that God showed to the chief unbeliever, the prime example of Israel's defiance and disobedience to the gospel of God, God showed mercy to that guy. God resolutely determines to show to all of humanity that same mercy, including all of Israel. So 1 Timothy 1.15-16 allows us to fire an arrow, as it were, from Romans 11.1 to Romans 11.26. I am an Israelite. He saved me. And so all Israel will be saved. As Paul the prototype, he was the prototype defiant and disobedient Israelite as he was saved by the apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ in him. So all of Israel will be saved. This, of course, is not the only arrow in the Spirit's quiver in Romans 11. There are many more ways, and we'll explore those in the coming Wednesdays. There are many more ways that the inspired apostle demonstrates with documentation from the scriptures that God only has not rejected the people whom he elected, but that his intention is to save them all by the same mercy he showed to Paul. Titus 3.5 again, it is not according to righteous deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. This mercy, by its very characteristic, is a saving power of God. If God shows mercy upon all, God saves all of Israel. And so, God not only has not rejected the people whom he elected, but his intention is to save them all by the same mercy that he showed to Paul, which is the paradigm of, the prime example, the exemplar of how God saves and of how the unlimited patience of the Messiah, Jesus, has embraced the worst sinner, the prototype sinner, which by definition, hamartolos, means not someone who doesn't do the law, a Gentile sinner, but someone who does do it. under the assumption that it justifies him in the eyes of God. I was blameless according to the rectitude that the law requires. But what do I count that all now? He said, I count it all as consigned to the dung heap for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I want to be found in him at any given moment of the day not with one single stitch of my own righteousness, but the righteousness of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. What do you think caused that change? I'd call it divine persuasion. So, in four ways, 
Paul shows himself to be the poster child for an astonishing salvation enacted by God through Jesus Christ's unlimited patience. And you don't picture, I don't picture Jesus waiting in patience now in heaven, like having his toe waiting for us to collapse in our own strength. All his patience was exhausted on the cross while he endured the cross for you. That patience went past all your stubbornness, went past all your unbelief, all your rejection, all your sins, all your lust, lusts, and all of mine. His grace ran faster than my sin. His patience outlasted my stubbornness and my defiance. He subdued me, conquered me, subordinated me to his grace. That doesn't mean that there isn't the old Adamic life rearing its head like a dragon in the basement. It does. And the devil takes opportunities at moments of weakness and at moments the greatest weakness we have is when we think we're something. It's when he comes around. And through his servants, he will say, so you really think you're something, don't you? And you say, well, kind of. And I agree. And your true friends will tell you, Christ is really something in you. And you really are something else in him. <laughs> so Paul shows himself four ways that he's the poster child for the salvation enacted by God through Jesus Christ's unlimited patience, which he expressed most notably already in his endurance of the cross for us. So Romans 11, let's look at it. All together here. I ask then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Absolutely not. No waiting for an answer here. That's unthinkable, he says. For I myself am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. So Paul makes it very clear here again, and I can't emphasize this strongly enough. The Israel that he's talking about here is precisely Israel according to physical heritage. He unambiguously states that he is of the seed, meaning the physical heritage, the hereditary heritage of Abraham, and that he belongs to the favored tribe of Benjamin, same tribe that Saul the king, King Saul, belonged to. Elsewhere, in Philippians, like 3, 4 to 7, he consigns these hereditary privileges to the dung heap in comparison with the super excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Lord, which is really Christ Jesus' knowledge of him. First, in Philippians 3, he touts his tribal membership in Benjamin, bragging, if anybody can boast after the flesh, I can do it more. I can do it better. So he touts and boasts like a politician does of his advantages in order to consign them all to the dung heap. All of his tribal membership in Benjamin, his descent from Abraham, his Pharisee of he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day. He lined all these up only to debunk these so-called advantages as merely belonging to the flesh and as having no saving efficacy. Here he makes it evident that he was saved, not because of those hereditary advantages, but that he was nevertheless saved as a member in particular of the people of Israel as far as hereditary entity. 
that all of Israel according to the flesh or physical descent from Abraham is to be saved, therefore, has nothing to do with their physical heritage, tribal membership, or performance under the dictates of the law of Moses. But it has everything to do with the universal mercy of God through the patience of the crucified Christ, his endurance of the cross, his obedience to the death of the cross. Jesus Christ's patience, the Lord's patience, is unlimited. And so his salvation is unlimited. So then Paul, and we'll close with these, he lets his next words fall like a hammer blow on a, rock, on a hard, stony rock place. Like God said to the prophet, I'll make, you, I'll make your word like a hammer, and the people's stony hearts will be shattered under the blows of that hammer. Paul lets his next words fall like a hammer blow, 11-2-A. God has not rejected his people whom he previously elected. And you remember the series we did? Gentile Christians, curb your enthusiasm. The Jews were broken off that we could be grafted into the tree. Paul said, yeah, but it's all the more easy to graft the branches that were broken off back into the olive tree for God. So what are you arrogant about? So the plain answer is right here. But then Paul doesn't quit there. He ends up talking about the remnant. He lets voice be given to Elijah who voiced the same objection that why is God still faithful to Israel after all they've done, after all their defiance, after all their disobedience, after all their idolatry, after all their following after Jezebel and Ahab. Echoing the Gentiles bias, but he also echoed the Jewish bias because the Jews could say like Elijah, I'm the only one left. So he builds on the remnant and he shows that the remnant far from being an example of Israel salvation being only of a few. The remnant is an example of the salvation of the whole. And then he goes into the root bearing the branches. He goes into if the first fruit is holy, then the whole lump is holy. Every which way he uses illustration on top of illustration, on top of metaphor, on top of metaphor, on top of figure, on top of figure to come to the climactic declaration that all Israel will be saved and God has secured all Gentiles at one time and all Jews together at one time to show mercy upon the whole disobedient lot. So all of Romans is about a salvation, a universally saving significance of God's son, Jesus Christ. And it's about a salvation of all of Israel in the context of the salvation of all of humanity once in Adam, now in Christ. In the horizon of the redemption of the whole of creation, which comes in with the climax of Romans 8. See, this is where God is bringing us, by God's grace. Because I despaired every time I looked at the end of how we're going to teach Romans. I was in despair the whole time. I said, how's this going to work? I got myself painted into a corner now. Started from the left flank, started from the right flank. Now I'm all jumbled up in the center. What do you, how are you going to do this? And he's doing it. So, Father, we thank you for your mercy, your kindness, your grace. We thank you for the assurance that we have in Romans. That the only thing that really brings about a unity among people is the saving mercy that you've extended to all of humankind. And when we're really mature in Christ, we realize that it's already done. 
Behold, I'm making all things new. It is done. So we thank you, Father.